Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Trevor. And together, we're We're Occasionally Interesting, interesting. the podcast where a couple travels the world interviewing the most interesting people they meet along the way. Sometimes it will be sweet, often entertaining, rarely conservative, frequently informative, occasionally occasionally interesting. Occasionally interesting, occasionally interesting. So, it's a bit of a long story. I'll try and keep it short. High <laughs> keep it medium length. Keep it medium length, all right. So, Not fully short. Many years ago, I was working in a healing centre in Amsterdam. I had just qualified as a therapist a year and a half before that. Very first place I worked. And my boss at the time, Lynn, my therapy mother, she was like, you're going to teach a class. You're going to teach like an open class in like a week of like, open days of spiritual teachings and everyone who was working there I was like fuck no there's no way I'm going to teach (laughs) I was I was like 24 years old I just qualified as a hypnotherapist after having suffered a spinal injury after having graduated top of my year of artificial intelligence and getting a really great job with computers using too many computers and retraining long story so I'm forced to give this talk and in this talk there's this American man in his early 60s called John, who you should interview. So he's like a tourist for one month in Amsterdam. We've become friends. He says, I just found this place called Chiang Mai. You should come visit. So that's what brought me to Chiang Mai in the first place, to, to visit John. He and what took, year was that? This was like, oh, goodness gracious. I think it was 16 years ago. Wow. 2004, 2005. He was actually showing me pictures yesterday. So he t- takes me to this party, and I meet a beautiful Thai lady. So, Pam. So we date for like three weeks, the rest of my travel plans, you know, I just stay in Chiang Mai, fall in love with this city. But then I've got to leave, I've got to go back to Amsterdam. Long story short, I got into another relationship, showed it's she, we lost all contact with each other. And six years later, I was coming from India, where I was working to get a visa in Bangkok. No. Yeah, to get a visa for India in Bangkok, that's right. And I had a job opportunity to work at Sanctuary on Koh Phangan, and my friend's girlfriend, she was very strong. She said, I've got this really strong feeling you're supposed to come to Chiang Mai with us. I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm going south. And she's like, no, no, you've got to come north. And I said, okay. She was really strong with me anyway, so I said, oh, okay, I'll come here for five days. First night, we went out. Whole chain of crazy synchronicity that led me to run straight into Pam again six years later. Wow. wow. So I took that as synchronicity, and I stayed here. And I married her. And then our relationship was the full roller coaster in life, and then we decided to separate. And then I got married again. <laughs> so I've been here for 10 years now. Wow. wow. Mm. It's a good place to land. It's a wonderful place to land. And there mm. does seem to be an energy of synchronicity here like you hear so especially us as interviewers I mean I say I, you know I became a podcaster because this is my default way of meeting people I just love nice. asking people <laughs> lots and lots of questions and hearing their stories and then wanting to share them with others because they're so interesting and in Chiang Mai so many people have a similar story of like synchronicity 
yeah, just everything kept lining up, everything kept flowing. Mm. Like, I opened myself up to Chiang Mai, and then everything else fell into place. And, yeah, it's wild. I wonder what the energy or whatever of this city is that makes that happen for so many people. It's a great question. Because many, many people have said similar things. From I have so many special friends who've been here for, like, a decade plus, quite a few. Mm-hmm. And almost every one of them came here for five days. Yeah. Quite interesting. Absolutely. I still haven't found anyone who can explain why the Thai people built 2,000 temples in Chiang Mai. Mm-hmm. It's the mm-hmm. highest concentration of temples anywhere in Thailand, perhaps most places in Asia. Wow. wow. Nobody know knows, that. right? Yeah. I mean, if you go like to Stonehenge in England or to Sedona in Arizona or Haleakala in Hawaii, whatever, everyone will tell you, you know, ley lines, this is where, you know, this is a place where the ley lines intersect. Well, we've heard that Chiang Mai too. You've heard this about Chiang Mai? Yeah. I'm lines. sure it must be. I've, I've never heard this about Chiang Mai, but it would make sense to me. We don't know much about ley lines, though, so yeah. I don't, don't count on our information. Uh, <laughs> you know, somebody out there will fact check us. <laughs> yeah, it's very curious. It's a very magical city. I think it's a city where people come to heal. Mm-hmm. And grow. And to grow, absolutely. Many. I've worked with so many people who've come out of divorces in the West or their children have just grown up and they've they've basically stayed together married to bring up kids or people from failed businesses or people just having a completely different perspective in their life looking for something different I think the general fundamental base energy of this city is really special yeah people feel it as soon as they arrive here and it is just this place where the, it has the highest ratio of people who are interesting and who I've mm. resonated with. I've felt like an outsider everywhere I've lived my entire mm. life of just being like, why, why aren't my people here? Like maybe meeting one person who I wanted to keep everywhere I moved to and then come to Chiang Mai and like immediately there's like, you know, a, couple, a dozen, a couple dozen of just like, I want you in my life forever. Like, mm. absolutely, it's been amazing. Very fortunate. Yes, for sure. I'm mm. full of my intro. You are definitely not the first person to say that, Jen. It's so true. I think certain places in the world, they attract certain types of people. For me, when I'm just in England, unless I'm talking about football, I just feel like an alien. Yeah. Just can't talk yeah, to absolutely. people about anything. I know. Going home has been an interesting experience. We went home after we were here for like nine, ten months, and... It was so weird. Uh, the, the primary thing that we noticed was that it is a culture of complaints and mm. that complaint is used as like a status mm. of, uh, you, know, you know, I'm a bigger victim, I have it worse, this thing happened to me and everybody is trying to outdo each other in this. And this the is tra- how we the re- trauma, relate to the each other. The trauma culture. Yeah. We're seeing a lot of that recently. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's troubling. Just being so like kind of removed from it, and then going into it and being submerged in it, and it's like, what's what's happening, guys? <laughs> like, it's, it's been really interesting to reflect on that uh, <laughs> during Corona too. Of again, so grateful for Chiang Mai and Thailand and the people I meet here. That a lot of them are adventurers, and in that adventure spirit, they're also entrepreneurs. And I think there's this mindset of always looking at everything of what can I make out of this? What's the opportunity mm-hmm. here? And hearing you know, a lot of friends back in America being like, 
I can't believe this is happening to me. This is horrible. Only seeing all of these things. And then all of my friends in Thailand being like, all right, awesome. What kind of like business can we make? How can we help people? Where's the problem? Where's the opportunity? How can we, you know, bring solutions? Mm. And like just a completely opposite mindset. And just, yeah, it's so amazing to be surrounded by this energy all the time mm. of everything is an opportunity rather than everything is a problem. You're talking about fundamentally going from the victor to the creator mentality, which are totally different like conceptual points of view in terms of consciousness and how, on how we face life, right? The victim mentality is like, poor me, this is happening to me, fuck, this is happening to me. And it's automatically a, a thing of reacting to circumstance and saying, on one level, basically saying no. So you, you react from fear to what's happening. This is victim. And often try to pull energy from other people of like, look, this is happening to me, you know, it's a way to get kind of attention in a way and many unconscious strategies. The creator strategy is why is this happening for me? Yes. I say this to many of my clients, you know, if you can pause, go from the story in your head to the feelings in your body, begin to bring awareness to the feelings and open to the feelings and feel safe to feel whatever feeling it is, no matter it is, or no matter what it is even if it feels really messy. Still saying, yes, this is love. And then to ask yourself, why is this happening for me? And that just sets a whole different chain of mind. So I think this is a big part of it, and I think it's a synergistic kind of effect on the energies around us. In that expression, you know, we're the sum of the five people we spend the most time with, right? So if I'm like in England, most people are pretty pissed off about life, you know, and, and you kind of get pulled down by the whole culture and the whole stress. Yeah. Because things are difficult there right now in the Western world. Right? Compared to here, it's more likely actually you're going to be around much um, more you know, creator-type people. Yeah. My best friend came over from Oregon you know, when we were still allowed to travel in the world. And um, the word that he said, seeing what we're doing in Chiang Mai and our communities and stuff here was mutual elevation. Oh, yes. Perfect. Beautiful quote, no? Absolutely. Mutual elevation. Yeah, that is definitely how I would describe my group of friends. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's, how, do we, how do we make it more widespread? Yeah. I think, like Gandhi said, right? Be the t- or maybe he said, because his quote's a bit like, it's a bit challenged <laughs> now. Yeah. Be the change you wish to see in the world. Change within the one is change within the whole. Yes. So every one of us does our individual growth, but then also goes out into the world to demonstrate it through our example. Absolutely. And that has changed over time. I say, you know, our podcast is about interviewing the most interesting people we meet while traveling, but that's definitely viewed through, well, my lens in particular. And uh, the individual action is a big theme of this podcast because it's something I have always felt so passionate about and interested in. I'm an environmentalist and mm. have always has happened since I was a young kid and believe that like absolutely it is the change that I bring into my life that is going to infect the most change like to, to wait for top down change is so unbelievably absurd to me like I mean I think them both happening at the same time is is ideal but yeah mm. Um, I think the world outside of us is a reflection of what's happening inside. Absolutely. Um, coronavirus, of all things, makes it really clear. Like at the time of the lockdown, I started doing, I started teaching um, 
just offering some free webinars. I just felt called. I needed to like help people. And the biggest message that came through is kind of weekly webinars I was channeling at the time was we need to focus on what we can control. Yeah. Because anxiety is often a symptom of focusing on what you can't control, of which there's a hell of a lot we can't be in control of right now. Yeah. So in this, e even this, like lockdown, how is this helping inform me? Like one lady who turned up in like the webinar, she's in the chat, she was like, I asked everybody this question, you know, how, how is this happening for you? Even if you just lost your business, how is this happening for you? Even then, how can you work through the anxiety? How can you get to an emotional state and open, find a new way to support yourself and your family? You know, and she was like, the whole world's been forced into a meditation retreat. Yes. I, thought was a really, I thought was a really good perspective. The amount of people's lives who are radically changed forever, it's a great perspective. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. But focusing on what we can control. And that will gradually affect the world. Yeah, I have one of my questions that I wrote down. I saw that you did this series of videos on uh, coronavirus. I'm wondering if there's any highlights <laughs> or tips that you could share for our listeners of, of whatever, for everyone who's not in Thailand, of how, what are things to focus on? How can you get through this? How can you reframe this? Or... In terms of the coronavirus, yeah. yeah. It's back to the idea of opening to the challenges. Because, because generally speaking, um, in life, things happen then in response or reaction to what happens, we have thoughts in our mind. And when we listen to those thoughts in our mind, they create feelings in our body. And those feelings in our body energize the thoughts in our mind. So this is kind of the circle of that. In the hypnosis world, we call like auto-suggestion. How we hypnotize ourselves into our, perspect into our perspectives. Every type of you know, emotional di discomfort is all about how we feel. Anxiety is a feeling. So to me, there's always what's going on. So maybe, you know, challenges in the coronavirus, anxiety. But then there's, then there's the second secondary level of how we react to that anxiety. Do we react or do we respond to it? Do we get anxious about being anxious? Do we react in a fearful way to the emotions that we're feeling? Or do we give anxiety a space of acceptance and love? So the first thing is, no matter what the challenges are from the virus in your life, notice when the negative thoughts, the fearful thoughts start spinning. This is a time of extreme fear in the world. Many people are really, really struggling and really concerned about caring for people they love. But for all of us, all of our emotions are a chance to grow. So to become aware of when that kind of loop of thinking and feeling and feeling and thinking and imagining bad things is happening, and in that moment, to just imagine a big, fat policeman screaming, stop, holding a big, like, stop sign. <laughs> just make the image really amusing in your mind, like, you know, crazy cartoon jelly or whatever. And then just focus on the feelings in your body. Even put your hands on the place you feel that feeling. Take a really deep breath, like... In through your nose, and take a really deep breath out through your mouth, and just say to yourself, safe. And just slow down your breathing, breathe slower and deeper in through your nose, into the feeling, breathe out, safe. You'll notice when you practice this that your emotions will begin to calm down. And then you might even begin to be able to ask yourself, okay, why is this happening for me? Or to close your eyes and imagine some, some, something going well. Like, for example, my, my clinic was closed down, you know, I offered all my clients, okay, we can cancel the session, we can reschedule the session, we should move the session online. 
And then one week I looked at my schedule, I had four bookings. And I felt that anxiety and I did my own processes on myself, calmed down my emotion, and I just visualized my schedule being full again. And lots of people smiling after sessions. And a week later I had like 16 sessions. <laughs> and it's been like that ever since. So we can create anything we want. Our minds are always creating our reality. And in anxiety, we have to bring awareness to it and accept our feelings. And then to try and focus on solutions rather than problems. And also to reach out to people to like know when you need support. There's lots of online support groups available, lots of free resources, spiritual community, friends, like know who to reach out to, to support with. And use your support structure and also offer friends support as well I think it's great when when people consciously make agreements okay we are close friends we are here to support each other like with some of my best friends here we have an agreement that any of us can contact any other and just say the word sanctuary at any time and if it's at all humanly possible the person who's been sanctuaried has to stop everything and be present with that person. I like that. Yeah. This works really well. I mm. like that a lot. Mm. It's, it's sort of a definitive thing, too. It's not... You know, it, de it defines the relationship in a different way instead of, like... Because we don't really define relationships, right? Unless it's, like, a... Unless it's a partner-like relationship where I say, now you're my partner, you're my girlfriend, you're mm. my boyfriend... Uh, friends, we don't do that with so much. I mean, maybe with Facebook, you could say, you know, I friend you on it. But can you like give somebody that? a dial, like good friend, bad friend? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's an interesting, like what that would do to, like, just the definition of it. You know, I think that changes it a bit and in a positive way, I would imagine. Mm. I like that. Yeah, and I always, like, you know, kind of not, I guess, kind of code words, words that are saying much more than just the word mm. like th that we've we've d decided on this meeting together and because a lot of times it is especially if you're in you know a difficult emotional state it's it gets a lot harder to articulate exactly what's mm. going on and if you can it's to be like hey i really need you right now and i'd really appreciate if you could be present with me like all of that would be it takes too much like yeah you don't really have the wherewithal to say that a lot of the time when mm. you're going through and to just say I also love the sanctuary. word sanctuary. Yeah. It's a good good choice. Uh, even just saying sanctuary is kind of calming. <laughs> Absolutely, right? It's internal sanctuary. I think I think it's good to like just bring awareness to the challenges, to like to have the fundamental confidence that, that you can work through any challenge in your life. To define, you know, support mechanisms, to reach out to them, and to nurture those relationships by offering support. It's kind of the way we like fill each other's buckets up, you know, emotionally. Absolutely. Mm. Would you like to do the introduction? Yeah. Well, that was some very good actionable advice. Thank you for sharing that. Excellent. <laughs> Today we have Nicholas Harris. Nicholas is a therapist exploring the power of consciousness for personal healing. He works in many modalities, including hypnotherapy, regression therapy, EMDR, EFT, NLP, and Reiki. He's the owner of the Chiang Mai Wellness Center and teaches a variety of online courses to help individuals on their personal journey to healing and wellness. That's all right. Do you have a favorite modality that you work with? Um, that's a difficult question, actually, because I see, well, maybe the simple answer is that I see them all now as being the same. Whoa. 
Interesting. Go I, on. I see, I see everything as being hypnosis. Because it's all about how our thoughts about reality create our emotions and how we respond to those emotions. How would you define hypnosis? Clinically speaking, hypnosis is when the mind is focused on one thing to the exclusion of everything else. So we talk about, we talk about light trance states, we talk about deep trance states, we talk about short trance, long trance, negative trance, positive trance. So for example, if you're walking down the road and in your mind you're thinking, I'm not good enough, I'm always going to fail, no one loves me, I can't find friends. And you're focused on those thoughts in your mind, they will create negative feelings in your heart. It's called the mind-emotion connection. And those negative feelings in your heart will like energize those thoughts in your mind. Somebody else can be walking down that same street thinking, what a wonderful day. Oh, so wonderful to have some time alone. You know, oh, look at that nice person smiling over there. You know, look at that beautiful flower. Positive thoughts in the mind, when you focus on them, create positive emotions. So this is an example of how the mind's always suggestive. We're always responding. Like the emotions we feel are created by what's, what's the contents of our psyche, both unconscious and conscious. But when people go to deeper states of, of focus, when the frequency of the mind slows down, then they become more suggestive, which means thoughts have more power to create emotions. So in my therapy, I help people to go from the problems that they're experiencing, that outer manifestation of problems, say relationship conflict, feeling abandoned, business problems, fear of failure, procrastination, can't focus. I help them to go from the problem to the emotion. And under, under hypnosis, I help them to heal their emotions. Really, my therapies become a combination of the major things I've studied, which is I studied hypnotherapy from when I was 13. Wow. Uh, computer programming from when I was six. And I got a degree in artificial intelligence and Tibetan Buddhism. I really bring together like AI, hypnotherapy and Tibetan Buddhism together. That is a very unique combination. <laughs> AI is all about how can we structure a human psyche in a computer. How could you structure the contents of somebody's mind in a system that you could ask this system questions and a human wouldn't be able to tell the difference compared to if it's, say, a real doctor or, a, or an AI doctor giving the answers. So the kind of study towards that, the studies, knowledge-based systems, neural networks, um, this way of kind of mapping human information, life experience, I've I found is a really great way to map human trauma and emotional experiences. So it gives me the kind of framework that I understand all our emotions. The emotions which we feel now are related to unresolved situations from the past, mm -hmm. in emotional communications in the present, projections into the future. So I kind of use like aspects of that to figure out how to help somebody in therapy, what to focus on, where, and how to help people understand the emotions they feel and fundamentally change their thoughts about the emotions they feel because guess what that changes your emotions and how does the tibetan buddhism inform all of this so fundamentally um buddhism is the fundamental teaching that we born get born 
we grow old, we get sick and we die. It could sound a little bit negative, right? So like, how is it possible to find a state of equanimity, of like mental openness and satisfaction um, through anything in our life? So the Buddha like deeply investigated the source of all human emotions. And Tibetan Buddhism is actually about using the mind to analyze the, the teachings of Buddha about the mind. So when I was in India one time, we were studying the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, which is basically a commentary on a commentary on like... In Tibetan Buddhism, you have, you have the teachings of like, of like the actual master, but like a normal person like us won't understand what, what he's talking about, basically. And then you have like a high-level student who like gives a commentary on this, kind of one level down. It's kind of like an easier-to-access version of this teaching. So if you can understand this, then you can begin to understand this. But once again, normal people can't understand these guys. And there's always different levels of commentaries on commentaries. And we were like two levels down, I think. An amazing American teacher. She's the first ever Gesha of Tibetan Buddhism. Recognized it's studying all the great canonical books. Studying uh, the perfection of wisdom sutra. Where the Buddha explains every kind of human emotion. How it's created in the mind and how to heal it in the mind. Which I would call psychotherapy. Mm. Hmm. So I kind of bring together like Buddhist practices into kind of hypnosis techniques and the way that I found to help people fundamentally use their use their imagination to heal their emotion. I teach people how to use their mind to to heal emotional pain. So then, what is the benefit of these extra? Uh, parts of these other modalities like of mm. EMDR if, I so mean, we, we threw out a lot of acronyms there and I'm, oh. I'm sure that probably our listeners aren't totally familiar with a lot of them so maybe we should just run through a very short version of what they actually mean and then maybe examine them more closely so what's EMDR? so EMDR is a form of trauma processing created by I believe, it, I believe it's created by Francine Shapiro. It stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, E-M-D-R. Eye movement, so you would normally focus on something with your eyes. Like, I would just use the end of the pen, and you would ask somebody to focus on an emotional target, which can be an, it could be an emotional feeling in the body, it can be a, a thought structure in their mind, it could be like an image... And you would ask them to focus on the feeling, to focus on the thought, focus on the pen and stimulate movements of the eyes in kind of sets of iterations of movements that, that basically stimulate um, rapid eye movement from dreaming. The theory is that when we process information, like we process the day, right? Things have happened, we've had emotional imprints, impressions of what's happened each day and we have to kind of file everything away. And the idea of that filing away from the front of the brain down, down towards the back of the brain um, actually happens through the processes of rapid eye movement, where the eyes move between different hemispheres of the brain, from logic to emotion, from emotion to logic. So the idea is that different stuff gets kind of stuck, not processed, you know, things we find ourselves thinking about in loops, and that by getting somebody to focus on that content while stimulating these movements of the eyes helps us hopes is uh, reprocessing yeah it's a great form of great form of a therapy processing i use these things kind of secondarily to hypnosis 
to when somebody, when somebody at the end of a session, I'll, I'll, I'll always have a, have a target in therapy. I believe that all emotions communicate, that the emotions are a map to inner alignment, if you like. So when somebody comes for therapy, I kind of break up their emotional state into, okay, we've got these traumas from childhood, we've got these problems now, we've got these things in the future. And for each, I ask somebody to close their eyes and think about it, bring it to their mind. You know, relationship problem. Close your eyes and think about when your partner said this. How does it feel? Give it a number from zero to 100. Where do you feel it? Um, if you were to give this feeling a word, what would the word be? If it's got a colour, what would the colour be? So we kind of map all the emotions. Now let's say I can see, okay, like a person's relationship conflict, they feel like a 60. And the person's issues with their mother, they feel like an 80, for example. So then in therapy, I'll help them to do some, some kind of emotional processing around the mother. And at the end of the session, like firstly, because it's the strongest target, at the end of the session, I'll say, close your eyes and think about your mother now. How does it feel? Does it feel the same? Does it feel worse? Can happen, not often. Or does it feel better? And we work on processing all the emotional targets until everyone just, everything's neutral. Because to be at peace in the present, we have to be at peace with the so EMTR is one way to do that. And how about but all kinds of therapy in that? NLP. <laughs> Neurolinguistic programming. Developed by... What are these guys Noam called Chomsky. again? Noam Chomsky. Based no. on Noam Chomsky. Well, that was one of my questions. It was actually on your uh, website. I was very surprised to, to see Richard a connection. So this is one of my questions. Was mm-hmm. What is the connection between... Neuro-linguistic programming and Noam Chomsky, who I'm a huge fan of. So, like, yeah, so Bandler and Grinder, that's his name. They did a P- I think it was a PhD at UCLA or UCSB, somewhere. One of those universities, maybe Santa Cruz, to forget. Anyway, it was a PhD in psychology. And the idea was um, that where psychology is going wrong is it's studying people who are broken. So the idea is, what if we study people who are working? What if we study people who excel in everything? And what if we study people who excel in different fields of life? Doctors, artists, athletes, didn't matter. And what if we study how they think, how they talk to themselves, how they imagine stuff? So if, and then what if we could then teach these same patterns to other people? So NLP like started by just taking from everyone, like, you know, like hypnosis, a lot of stuff from hypnosis, like in, in NLP, and the concept of modeling. So Chomsky broke down language, from my understanding. Right? There's a thing called the meta model in, in NLP, and the, another one called the Milton model. The meta model, I believe, is based on the language patterns of Chomsky, and it shows how people, it shows basically how you can get people to hire levels of thought so for and, 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 and it's become a therapy thing looking at all language breaking mm. it down with Chomsky's language and then giving what's called metamodal violations which is basically how you can unhypnotize people so a client says I'm depressed I am it's one of, one of the language patterns and, and the violation thing you say back to the client is how are you, how are you depressing yourself exactly and then they go I keep thinking about my mother you know and then you can start going up like this Whereas the Milton model is based on Milton Erickson and its language patterns to get people to go into themselves, into trance. 
And as you begin to become aware, it's interesting how you can focus inside and take a deep breath and feel yourself going deeper and deeper. Like all Milton Erickson type language. So NLP is just different techniques, different stuff to help people to uh, learn how their emotional maps are created inside and change their states. It's really fascinating uh, you know, reading... Uh, understanding power, which is, is is not written, it's a conversation. It's like an interview uh, with Chomsky, and, and just the way ah. that he speaks is 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 so just moving in a way that like it's it's undeniably it's like it it creates a different reality. I mean, it's just he's one of the most fascinating people I've ever had the pleasure of consuming. <laughs> um, and I, 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 it makes sense that, that stuff should be modeled after the way that he speaks. Like, I describe his book as, like, axiomatic in a way of, like, just, like, it's, it's just undeniably, like, this is the way that this is. And this, he's got such a beautiful way of mm. demonstrating this mm. that is, is intriguing. And to hear that it's been analyzed in such a complete way is, is mm. I'm, I'm very happy about that. <laughs> Interesting. I'll have to look more into that. I guess it all kind of goes towards self-mastery, you know. If we can be in control of how we think about the world, how we can use our minds, of our perceptions, if we can be in control of how we feel inside of ourselves, then we can begin to master our life because we can respond to stuff and grow through challenges rather than react and close down. Certainly. Um, So I'm a skeptic of uh, hypnotism. Excellent. This has been a conversation that we've been having recently, <laughs> uh, like a lot recently. I don't, I don't even. It just keeps yeah, coming up. I, think, I feel like since coronavirus started, like we've been talking about hypnotism a lot. I mean, just it <laughs> yeah. just keeps on getting brought up in different things. I am, I am not a skeptic. I've been, uh, I mean, yeah, I've done some forms of hypnosis um, therapy. So, you know, having no professional uh, education on any of this my, my sort of my theory is is like people by and large tend to be reactionary they tend to react to everything yeah uh, I'd say that's like the, a large percent an alarmingly large percentage of people's lives are just reaction 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 and what things like meditation does which I would say is really a form of hypnosis and all these things are a form of meditation is it brings you into the present and when you're in the present then you can feel what you're feeling and no longer be just a reactionary you can start to anticipate and plan and do things differently because you're now aware so it's bringing awareness to yourself and what all these things do are just sort of different techniques of what meditation is essentially doing, which is bringing you into the present, allowing you to feel what you're feeling, being okay with that, and then using that in a positive way as opposed to a negative way. Hypnosis, and I guess the hypnosis that I'm really referring to, and like maybe like the YouTube videos where you see people doing like extreme things or not remembering what they're doing from it, or that they could be suggested to say like tea instead of coffee. That's really what I mean when I say that 
I'm skeptical of hypnosis. I think that you can probably bring somebody into a meditative state, a guided meditative state, and then give them, or hopefully be able to at least give them some of the tools to kind of be able to choose their own um, perception of their lives. But aside from that, I'm not convinced that you could say change somebody more fundamentally than like all this, like make them do something that they wouldn't normally do or weren't aware that they were doing. So there's a big difference between hypnotherapy and stage hypnosis. That's it's kind of two conversations you're opening up there. One is what's the difference between hypnosis and meditation? Really important question. And the, and the other is what's the difference between hypnotherapy and stage hypnosis? So firstly, the stage hypnosis, right? Firstly, like, has anybody in the world ever gone up on the stage for stage hypnosis who doesn't know what's going to happen? What do you mean what's going to happen? Everybody knows that stage hypnosis show people are going to be doing stuff, like eating lemons. Yeah. And people don't volunteer to go on stage unless they like being on stage normally, you know? So I used to do stage hypnosis when I was a kid, you know, like... And if you have, like... I just did it at school or university, but if you're like a professional and you have like a thousand people in the audience, then probably there's going to be ten of those who are happy to come on stage and be able to achieve those levels of trance. So the people that go up on the stage, they first are normally exhibitionists, they agree. There's a level of trance that about 25% of people can reach called somnambulistic trance. It's the waking dream state. It's exactly the same state when you're dreaming, exactly the same. You know, when you're dreaming and whatever's going on, it's completely real. That's exactly the same state of mind. Just some people can be, can be, shown, can be shown how to be guided there in a hetero-hypnosis space. Like one person, like guiding another. And there's ways to test and to find those people very, very quickly through what's called suggestibility tests. And in that state, you can absolutely say, when I click my fingers, this phone is a naked woman standing there. And people see that because you can induce positive or negative hallucinations in any state. Some of my clients go there in therapy, not very often. I don't even try and get people to that state because it's not necessary. It's an amazing state. It's used a lot in therapy with burn victims and, and uh, women with eating disorders, actually, anorexia, because that's like already hallucination. Mm. That's how it's taught clinically, it was to me anyway. Hypnotherapy is about using various states in order to in order to you know resolve emotional distress right so we normally use lighter states of mind absolutely meditation brings you to the present moment like what 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 is the absolute present moment it's a good question right what is the absolute present moment <laughs> it's a hard thing to define i mean i think that <laughs> that instance in between before and after sensation or thought or I would define it as the absence of thought hmm. like you're just there my mind is totally still and open like I've experienced yeah, meditation retreats and stuff I remember I had a I had this unity experience in one meditation retreat ago I've never experienced anything like that where like walking meditation there's me there's the tree there's my thoughts about the tree that kind of come and go and then it just all stopped and everything was just one 
if your mind is totally absent of thought, that is absolute present moment. Because otherwise your mind's going to like the next thing or to the last thing all the time. And when some idea comes into your mind, if you focus on it, boom, you're hypnotizing yourself because it creates emotion. So absolutely we reach exactly the same states of consciousness through like a through like a meditation technique, like I practice a Tibetan kind of shamata practice or through vipassana, you, you reach different states of consciousness and you go through the same kind of states in hypnosis. But what you do in that state is very, very different. Meditation normally is a memory comes up, you just, for example, you just let it go and come back, come back to your mantra or come back to the sensation. Hypnosis, a memory comes up, you might start doing all kinds of stuff like working with that memory or stepping into that memory or supporting a younger version of yourself going through a trauma in the past or all kinds of stuff. Integrating like lessons from things which have happened in the past, psychically communicating things which a part of you needs to say, energetic detox processes, all types of stuff. So it's about what we do in the state of mind which is very, very different. What are some of the suggestibility tests? For stage hypnosis? In general? Do you want to hypnotize your girlfriend? Oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> if, if, uh... I'm, saying, I'm, I'm highly suggestible for sure. <laughs> so everyone's really... Like, so in therapy, I never use suggestibility tests because just everybody, we can get to certain levels of trance. But for like, heightened suggestibility, one works like this. You just... Clasp your hands together. You get this is what they normally do for stage hypnosis. They say I want everyone to clasp their hands together and to close your eyes and to imagine that your hands are clasped together and you cannot get them apart. And to start just saying in your mind again and again, My hands are clasped together, I cannot get them apart. My hands are clasped together. And then the hypnotist starts to go, it's as if there's some super glue be between your hands and you can feel that super glue beginning to bond. My hands are clasped together. Bonding stronger and stronger as I count from three to one, three, my hands are clasped together, two, one. And you cannot separate your hands. You cannot separate your hands. And then to ask everyone to try to separate their hands. And many, many, most people will feel some resistance. Some people really can't at all. And other people are like, what am I doing? So the people who are like, Jesus Christ, they're the highly suggestible mm -hmm. ones. What do you think is the difference between somebody who's highly suggestible and somebody who isn't? Generally speaking, like, definitely intelligence. The ability to focus is very, very important. We train that in all forms of meditation and hypnosis. Often high, people of higher intelligence can focus better. Open-mindedness. Um, creativity, like good imagination. And desire to enter the state. If people believe that hypnosis is about somebody else controlling you, then of course they're not going to want to do that, right? As I always tell everybody, it's not about losing control, right? It's not about yeah, being totally out of control. It's actually about gaining control. Because to be in control is to be in control of how you think and how you feel and how you behave. So it's for people to understand that like, I never hypnotize anyone. I just guide people in hypnotizing themselves. No one will ever do anything that they don't want to do under hypnosis. right? 
um, is about working with people's belief systems, not outside of people's belief systems. Because we all have a we all have a way that our psyche is basically structured. Like what's the, how is all of our life experience held together in our mind? How are are our beliefs formed? And how our emotional responses to the world it's really a result of all of that. So in hypnosis and therapy it's about working yet about figuring out how somebody's mind is put together and their belief system and finding a way to work with them with their permission towards a goal that they wish to achieve. It's called psychic rapport. Mm. Not trying to make everyone think they're chickens like on the stage it makes sense. Most people are like, you know what, I wish I didn't feel this feeling of abandonment all the time in my relationships. And we're like, okay, great, let's go back and heal this trauma from the past and now you don't feel that feeling anymore. Now, you're, now your behaviour is totally different in your relationship, now your beha- partner responds differently to you and so on and so forth. And now your life feels happier. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah. I think happiness is fundamentally like the sun on an English summer's day. It's always there, it's just behind the clouds. And all of the emotions that limit us from feeling the sun are what we have to go into in therapy. Mm. Someone else on our podcast has defined happiness as externally given and joy as internally cultivated. Interesting. Mm. You f- are you familiar with uh, Siegelman? Martin Martin P. Seligman. Seligman? Uh, uh, positive psychology. Okay. He like, uh, invented the branch of positive psychology. He's a professor at UPenn and he's written several books on the subject, including Flourish and. Happiness. happiness was his first. He didn't uh, like the name happiness because he considered it a momentary state. Uh, and he really was wanting to sort of define what it would mean to be like, happy. What makes a happy person? And then he sort of changed that to makes, what makes a flourishing person? Uh, and the different linguistics there. And he does a great job of explaining why there's a big difference there. Um, but kind of what you were referring to earlier of the idea of positive psychology focusing on what not just what's wrong with people and how do we fix it, but what's right about mm. people and how do we accentuate that. Mm. Uh, so it's a fantastic book. How can we teach like how how can we teach people the basis of success, of happiness? I mean I believe that everybody should be taught about their emotions in school. I think emotional education is the thing that's the biggest missing from schools, that training and dealing with being human and understanding our feelings and having tools to work through difficult feelings that see the emotions in other people, consciously create positive feelings, exploring the basis of things like relationships and forgiveness might be really useful to teach children in school. Rather than people unconsciously absorbing these or just all of these base patterns from their parents with little more emotional support than that. Yes, yeah, so we've been really into Mr. Rogers lately. Are you familiar with uh, Mr. Mr. Rogers? Yeah. Oh. He's an American icon who's uh, 
He had a children's television show from like the late 60s until the early 2000s. Wow. It was, uh, it was publicly funded, so he was very uh, controversial, wow. became very controversial later in, in politics about how much public funding is going to these kinds of programs. And, uh, and his, his one of the only shows that you could go on and watch. And he, the way that he interacts with kids is just, it's just fabulous. Like validating emotions in, in such a mature way, and like mm. he's really, yeah. but on a way that it, that it gets on the child's level, um, yeah. and like he talks all about how to see things from a child's perspective and meet them mm. where they're at and communicate with them there and make sense of the world from the way they see it. Um, he's a fantastic new movie Tom, with yeah, Tom, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks recently played him in a, in a biopic called It's a Wonderful Day in the Neighborhood. Recommend. There's also okay, a cool. I want to watch that. documentary. I think you'd probably enjoy it a lot. Yeah. It's very good. On one level, there's like something happening in the world and there's like an internal emotional stuff going on. There's internal mental stuff going on. So if we can, turn, if we can change our thoughts about our emotions, they change the emotions themselves. Like I said, anxiety about anxiety or acceptance about anxiety. It's kind of like the end goal of me for therapy is I try to help my clients walk out believing there's nothing wrong with them and that they can deal with every single emotion that they feel. Because so many people walk in and they think, there's something wrong with me. You know, a psychiatrist told me that I am X. America's the worst at this. They just label everybody and they have some, some drugs to give all those people that... There's obviously a lot of conditions which require medication. However, the medication is very often over-prescribed or prescribed when it's not necessary. With a lot of secondary side effects, right? So rather than being like, I am X and I need to take drugs every day to feel better, I'm like, you are human and there's a reason for these feelings. And let's see if we can find a way to make those feelings manageable. So at the end of the day, if those feelings come up, then it's almost like we've developed a higher groove in the mind where you can actually talk through your own emotions and change your inner dialogue about your emotional life and how you relate to other people's emotional life. Because that changes our emotions inside of us, which then reflects into changes in the world outside of us. Yeah. Yes, I remember uh, a therapist working with a client of addiction, and the client called himself a junkie. And the therapist was very upset about this. And was like, you're not a junkie. Like, that's a terrible thing to label yourself. Yeah. Like, don't take that agreement on. And I remember that it always stuck with me. It's happened years and years and years ago. Um, and it's been revalidated. We just read uh, The Four Agreements. Great book. Great book. Fantastic. Don Mikhail Ruiz. Great uh, book. It was, yeah. yeah it was, we read it at the very beginning of uh, lockdown in, mm-hmm. in March. And, yeah, I feel like it's definitely really... Now, now we have this dialogue in our relationship of being like whatever one of us is like, you know being whatever accepting agreement and then we just have this thing of like you don't need to make that agreement with yourself <laughs> yeah. the difference in what happens in our relationships where we step into into owning our own emotions and feeling that we're responsible for our emotional state rather than believing that our partner is responsible for our emotional state. Because if I'm like, I feel bad and I need you to change so I feel better, then that sets up a kind of codependent, resentful loop of point-keeping in relationships. But if I'm like, I feel bad and I own this emotion and I feel safe to share this emotion with you from a place that feels safe to you from permission without making you responsible for my emotion now through every difficult 
emotional situation, we become closer to our partner. This is what my wife and I, we practice all of the time, you know, we just speak the emotions that we feel and always share them from a place of curiosity and permission and ownership. And then you grow through absolutely everything. Is there anything that sets you off to be more reactionary where you have to dial back to that spot? Or of course, like I'm not enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> we just practice like everybody else. What are, what are those like... Uh, my triggers, what, what my are, personal triggers. No, no, no. <laughs> Emotional Achilles like, heels. <laughs> Let's lay them out. Yeah, and but, uh, no, what are those steps you take to dial back? Like if you have getting this reactionary space and then you see yourself behaving or reacting in this way that you're like, and you're able to at least get the mindset of like, wait a second, I don't want to be like that. Then how do you go from... Number one, become aware. Mm-hmm. Number two, pause. Remember what I said, like a good image that helps me imagine a big fat American police officer <laughs> with a stop sign. <laughs> screaming naked. Screaming. Oh God. Because you imagine the image that's like a pattern break in your mind. And so that's NLP techniques, you know. Make the image sexual, make it silly, make it ridiculous, make it shocking. So your mind remembers it. You know? Big stop sign. And then just focus on the feeling in your body. And just take a really deep breath all the way into it and the deep breath all the way out just start to go into the feeling and then from the feeling now you can begin to have some space okay how do I want to deal with this feeling right now do I want to share it with my partner right now do I want to request do I want to request or the state of need for a little bit of processing time and go for a walk or go to the gym or go meditate I suppose and the then go f- and then there, go from there. It's the pause. It's all in the pause. It's all yeah. The, the the awareness, like to like when you start to get into that reactionary sort of yeah. lower brain function, it's really hard to become aware. That's where the practice is. I often hypnotize my clients. I put a suggestion in that I create that pause using hypnosis. Little, se- little secret in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I teach them a technique, and when I teach it to them in therapy, so it becomes automatic. And the more they wow. experience this pause, and the more it begins to grow inside of them, right? As this kind, as 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 this kind of confidence. But when you catch, when you've been triggered, you've been hooked, and you've kind of gone down this line. Now you're like five minutes into an argument with your girlfriend or something. Even in that moment, you can become aware. Okay, now I am projecting. Projecting is when you are triggered. You are fully reacting to your feeling, and you're projecting at somebody else. Even when you're doing it, you can stop. I'm really sorry. I'm projecting, and then you can stop again and use that as practice. And when your partner gets to practice forgiveness, <laughs> it's all about practice. One of my teachers, he said, therapy leads to awareness. Awareness leads to practice. Practice leads to change. Mm. And therapy is only one way to build awareness. Meditation is another way. Perhaps a better way. <laughs> people who practice probably is if you practice every day Mm. even for like five minutes so I guess I could go to you to get the discipline to practice the meditation every day I do that sometimes (laughs) too yeah that would be great because I would really love to meditate but it's just like you wake up in the morning and your first impulse is to sit by yourself and meditate for 20 minutes that would be great and the more you meditate the better you feel the better you feel the more you want to meditate and you'll remember this now it's true (laughs) don't listen to the hypnotist (laughs) <laughs> yeah a lot of things like there's a, there's a man here John you should interview John he's one of the guy who came to my very first hypnosis talk in Amsterdam he's about to become 77 next week I think very special man 
very much in, uh, into organic organic foods. He made all his money in organic food business mm-hmm. in America. And he My studies God. hours a day in organic still. You know. And um, he said the key to upgrading your life is upgrading your rituals. Yes. <laughs> I like this a lot. So creating that ritual of the morning meditation or whatever. You know. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I just texted uh, Jen this morning I've been, I've been trying to I've been trying to search for how to create better rituals essentially is really what I've been trying to do okay. we've come up with all these different like morning routines all these things and they quickly fall by the wayside and my new idea one that I texted Jen because she's better doing these things than I am was to remind me at least and she's welcome to join in also to create a schedule for tomorrow so I know what I'm doing tomorrow and include things like wake up spend 20 minutes but like because for me, it's, it's just, it's an absence of thought. It's not really an unwillingness to do it. Lack of awareness. For the most part, at least. There's a little resistance, I'll yeah. be honest. But yeah, for the most part, it's just like I don't think about meditating when, when I get when there's, when there's the resistance, then the thing to meditate on is the resistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I meditate on the movement of emotion. That's just what's come through to me over the years mm-hmm. in a kind of shamata type the way. The movement of emotion? Yeah. What so does I, that mean? I just rest my mind on whatever the strongest feeling in my body is. Mm. Yeah, that's been the path that I've been really exploring in the last six months. We had our bachelor party um, in Copenhagen in March, and then we got stuck there for coronavirus with a couple friends. But yeah. um, my one f- uh, friend who came to the bachelor party, I, I was asking him, how do you begin to heal trauma? And he said, pay attention to where it is in your body. And, and I've been Absolutely. working on that for six months and it's been a wild ride of like, I never paid attention to my body. I, I, I definitely, I mean, like I've been in a lot of pain, but never began to question the association between like, what am I telling myself and what is my body telling me or vice versa? And yeah, mm-hmm. then now cultivating this practice and awareness and being able to like go both ways of like my body's hurting what am I saying underneath the current mm. oh shit I should definitely like change, change that mindset or uh yeah um, where or, or noticing oh I'm feeling you know an overreaction to something where do I feel this in my body and that's been so interesting to be like it's all over the place mm. I mean for the same things it's always the same place like I get very uh very ir- irrationally upset when people watch me in the kitchen and that and always have or at least for as long as I can remember and to notice where I feel that is always like right here in the middle of my back where I have all this chronic pain and then it gets so tight the moment somebody watches me in the kitchen and then I feel like all my words get stuck in there and it's such an interesting thing but you know that's completely different than when I think about you know uh, or like a childhood thing or something and being like oh that's in my diaphragm and like whatever mm-hmm. noticing it's not yeah they're stored all over the place and then I'm a lot in here and <laughs> it's very it's a wild ride everything's a reflection right physical body emotional body mental body yeah. and spiritual body and all four are a reflection and every type of healing art focuses on one or more of these bodies and reflects into changing the others. Like mm-hmm. massage, for example, you know, you go through some like some muscle stuff and you suddenly have an emotional release. And you suddenly feel like how your kind of the lens of how you're thinking changes. And on an energetic level you feel feel a lot lighter. So in hypnosis, one of the things which we do is we focus on those feelings, for example, that thing in the back of your back, 
And under hypnosis, I just get you to, into a space in your mind where you can remember the content of all of your lives and tell you to go back to where that feeling was created. And we see what happens. I'm so curious <laughs> where this got created because it is an odd one. And I feel like it doesn't really go with the rest of my personality, but I'm so intense about it. <laughs> I think, these, I, th I think these things are memories. Most things come from this life. Sometimes people go to spaces before this life. I mean, I average about 1,000 sessions a year, but last year's in Chiang Mai, and I probably, I probably end up with five past life sessions every year. So most things really are, are this life. But when people go back to past lives, it's really interesting. And mm -hmm. yeah. I've been told by the, one of the hypnosis person I saw, I have a very chronic thirst, and he said that this definitely comes from... Past life. Mm. Well, this is not. So, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> uh, what, what are your personal and/or professional opinions on psychedelics? Psychedelics. Um, I think that psychedelics are incredible tools for consciousness growth. I've used psychedelics for consciousness growth. I think that they need to be used appropriately. Like originally, like originally, you know, in the sixties, Aldous Huxley and all this crew, you know, like. Um, set setting and intention so having the you know, the right environment the set no no the set is like the person's uh, the person's life like where are they at this moment in their life journey and what how's everything brought together to this the setting is the, the, the environment and the people around and the intention is what you're what you are asking the psychedelic what assistance is. So I think they're incredible tools. They should be used with respect and with the right guidance, so at least the right self-knowledge. Like, like using psychedelics without any idea of how to like direct your mind, like how, like how to meditate, how to, how to rest with what comes up, um, to me is crazy. You need to have some... It's, it's, it's like putting, putting yourself into a Ferrari before, you know, and learning how to drive properly. I see that our minds, like I said, we're always suggestive, we always react to our thoughts. I see LSD is a profound state of hypnotic suggestibility, like being in the really, really fast, you know, car. You have to be able to, like, steer it and drive it and stuff. So, yeah, I would say that MDMA is uh, probably the best therapy tool in the world. Mm. It's just completely insanity to me that they will give people Prozac every single day and say that's a good idea, but won't let... Won't, but say it's illegal to facilitate a couple MDMA therapy session where you can heal so much in such yeah. a short amount of time. It was created as a therapy drug in the first place, and yeah. they did a very good job. MDMA is also it's very it's incredibly powerful for forgiveness, any kind of trauma. There's mm -hmm. no therapy drug like it. I think. Yeah, I mean it's really a shame. Hopefully that's changing soon. It's a matter of time. It's opening up. Yeah, we have a, somebody who was on the podcast a couple of months ago who's in the States, and uh, yeah, she's been working on uh, putting together a board of all this psychedelic-assisted therapists, and she's like on the front lines of bringing it to the public awareness and like, mm. being like we're not going to hide anymore, and she's creating this amazing documentary uh, that's all about this stuff, and uh, yeah, check it out. Mm. That's, that's Becca episode. 42 <laughs> so I think it's important with these things whether you use them or whether the thing uses you yeah whether you use it or whether you abuse it 
while they're really, really powerful tools, if they're used without the right respect, without the right guidance, if they're overused, they can also cause a great amount of psychic harm. Mm -hmm. So it's not the magic tool for everything, but it is a great tool. One of my friends in Amsterdam years ago is a Hare Krishna master. He gave me the very best explanation of this. He said, imagine you have like a spiritual bank account. So you do things like you meditate, you eat healthy food, you do yoga, you know. You build up these kind of positive points. And then you take some psychedelics with good intention and you kind of burn off some of your bank account. And if you remain in positive territory, you get great spiritual growth through this. Mm-hmm. But if you go overdrawn, you get you, you like set yourself back a long way. Mm-hmm. I thought that's a really, really great way to see that. And that was from a, a really top Hare Krishna master from Russia. Nice. Yeah. That always made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. So yeah, in Amsterdam, when I, I was a therapist there for six years. We used to facilitate psychedelic therapy. And, and But there was some famous book from the 60s which basically said like LSD once a year, mushrooms like four times a year. I would add on to that something like MDMA maximum twice a year because the mind has to recover from these things if you use these things in the right way. So what does it mean to be an eighth generation Reiki master? Reiki master. Reiki master. So, so originally like Ushui channeled Reiki and anybody that he made, he made into a Reiki master was like a second generation. So he's the beginning. So Reiki is one way to work with energy for healing. You learn different ways to access different vibrations of, of energy through different practices, of different energetic practices. And you receive the different levels of Reiki through a ritual called initiations, where the ability to channel Reiki is passed from teacher to student. So anybody who got to the final level of Reiki, where Rishui himself was first, was second generation. Um, one of his second generations was called Dr. Hirashi, who one of the people who became a master of him was Mrs. Takaka, third generation, who started the whole Western lineage of Reiki. So I'm number eight. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Reiki is another thing that I, I'm skeptical of. I don't know if it's been uh, living in Thailand for the past two years or not, but I'm certainly have become much, much, much more open to the idea. Didn't you not know what Reiki was before our first date? I may Portland. not have. Yeah, I mean, I might have had a vague idea of what it was, but no, probably not. But um, that he said he had previously been very, uh, you know, that he had done a bit of, like, channeling this healing source himself and had been attracted to making certain symbols with his hands and then... We went to, we did a, sa- we were... But this was all very, I've like, would have never, I've never told anybody that. I never would have, like, I always thought what I was doing was kind of crazy and silly and just like kind of dismissed it. And then we were at this gathering and we saw somebody doing something. I was like, what is that? And they were like, it's Reiki. And hmm. so it was not hands-on Reiki. It was different. Uh, I don't know. I just still don't really know much about it, but, um. It's certainly interesting, and Jen's seeing an osteopath now, um, and he's spoken about energy work in a way that is really interesting, especially because he's also combining it with like different techniques like dry needling, and to see where... Uh, not you know, energy work. 
to see where, uh, like, a needle in the neck, which no nerves would be going down to, say, her lower half. So there shouldn't be any necessarily connection of, like, the stimulation down there and seeing that seeing that feeling resonate in a different place than where it should, neurologically speaking, is like... And then he started to briefly go into energy meridians and how there's a possible explanation of why these things could occur. Mm. And it was really interesting to be able to actually watch this happen. And, yeah, it's been... It's been, it's been He's given me the prescription that I need to get Reiki. He's like, you know, healing your body can only do so much. Like, you're holding on to a lot of this tension energetically Mm. but the idea that there can be that energy transference I find very intriguing albeit skeptical Um, but yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting subject for sure Mm. everything in the universe is energy energy is never created or destroyed it's just transformed from one form to another all of the time like if Jen says something to me and I get really angry like her talking is energy my emotion is energy and I react and I pick up the soda water and I throw it at the wall with energy then the the bottle smashes heat and sound kinetic energy you know then she reacts energy (laughs) everything's energy it's always created or destroyed It's it's where kind of spirituality and physics agree so and everything's connected we're all connected to each other every time you think about about somebody you kind of send them an energetic cord there's like I believe there's like a collective collective like super conscious if you like so um, energies affect each other right if I walk in here to be on this podcast feeling anxious for example you feel that emotion and it affects our your reaction to me, our conversation, I walk in here feeling confident, you feel, I feel relaxed, you feel relaxed with me. Energies are always coming into contact with each other and they're always affecting each other. Certainly. But so the materialist in me, like the Newtonian physics guy, Uh-oh. would say, <laughs> like, you know, yeah, there's, the, there's, there's one, like what you're describing is, is, is a very materialistic view of, of energy being transferred and, and, and manipulated. Um, even down to like your body language and your posture, I'm observing, I'm interpreting, I'm consciously like. So it's it's yeah. not like there's, it's yes, there is an energy flow there. But Reiki, from what I understand of it, which could be wrong, is sort of different than that. So like if you're if I'm lying on my back and somebody's hands are over top of me and I'm not aware of where they are, and I'm not aware of what they're doing, to seems like. There's not a scientific explanation that I'm aware of that could could explain how that could have a energi- energy transferring effect. Mm. Does that need to be? There doesn't need to be. <laughs> um, and, this, and this is, I mean, this is this is especially recently come coming away from that sort of materialistic version of myself into a more, I'll say, spiritual version of accepting of these. And being sort of shown over and over again that these things kind of happen and keep happening. And how many times does it have to happen for you to believe that there's something going on? It's, it's a really, it's been an interesting journey to, to, to see it. It's good uh, to explore new things. Of course. It's all about feeling. Like Reiki just teaches various practices and structures that you could hold a higher vibration of energy. So for example, if you're feeling quite tired, 
you come home from work and your partner's like, come on, let's go out. And she makes you go out and, and you go out somewhere which is like quite energetic. You might find yourself wake up. So your energy's pulled up, you know? Similarly, if you're feeling great and you come home and she's really depressed, you know, and you stay home, you might find yourself feeling pulled back. All your energies might like, kind of do this and influence each other. So Reiki, energies are always affecting each other. We feel vibrations in rooms, but Reiki teaches a way you can hold a higher and higher and higher and higher vibration and hold it in the presence of lower vibration stuff. Mm. So through that, when you, you hold your hands over a place in the body, for example, in a high vibration, other stuff in the person will come up. It's quite amazing. It's truly fascinating. It's, it's just basically Reiki, we could say in one way, it's kind of like the touch of unconditional I think it's a good way to say it. So people learn, like I teach Reiki to couples sometimes, and teaching, you know, like non-sexual ways to enjoy touch, for example, can be really, really healing in lots of relationships. And yeah, and it also just, it goes together with meditation, it goes together with awareness, just learning various principles around life, you know. I used to teach a lot of Reiki. But I kind of stopped teaching because I got a bit bored of it. I taught like hundreds and hundreds of people Reiki. And I wanted to start only teaching like people coming from higher level like to become Reiki teachers and stuff. Mm. That's normally who I teach now. But you could see the whole of Reiki, like when I did my Reiki master teacher and, and we laid out, you know, with this, my, my, my Reiki master, Shanti, is an amazing woman in India. She's in her 70s. We laid out all of the Reiki structure and I could see it's kind of a structured system of psychic development. It teaches a bunch of practices, different ways to train in the beginning, your ability to focus your mind, your belief in yourself, life, energy, and your intention. Focus, belief, and intention. So if I put my hands on you and you're feeling anxious, and if I believe that I can help you to feel lighter and more relaxed in your heart, then I basically can. And different ways to begin to train those things and then see what happens through the practice of channeling Reiki. And then, and then we go through different levels of, of, of the Reiki structure. You receive these symbols that teach you different ways to work with um, emotions on an energetic level. I kind of bring it all together with hypnosis naturally now in my mind. I would say the core of Reiki though is about training our beliefs in ourselves. Because we are, we are hypnotized with certain beliefs when we're kids, right? Mm -hmm. We're hypnotized with beliefs around the culture that we live, what's right, what's wrong. Even about what religion we should believe or, or not believe. We're seeded with a bunch of ideas. But if you imagine that the human consciousness is... If you imagine you just take a, a human consciousness and it doesn't matter if that's a doesn't matter what colour this person's skin is, what religion their parents are, their ancestor, what culture they're born into, the human mind's a human mind and they're fundamentally the same. But then they're imprinted in different ideas depending on all kinds of socio demographics and cultures and religious biases and Yada yada yada, just ideas, which I would call like, like an operating system. I think all cultures are just like a hypnotic pattern. 
So one thing we learn when we live in a different culture is we start to be exposed to different ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, this thing that's not okay back home, oh, actually that is okay here. And then, oh, actually, hang on a second, maybe it works quite well, actually. And you go home and then you experience, like you guys mentioned, reverse culture shock. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like more than anything, it was, for me, it was the absence of all of these things that I took for granted as like this is what it is to be human this is what it is to be in society and then they just aren't that here and yeah and certainly that culture of complaint and then we, we were just on a family zoom call this morning and uh, everyone was talking about the different political ads they have going on right now in America oh, wow. and the different places yeah. they live and I was saying something that I reflected on a lot when we first moved here of being like I never ever realized at all that advertising or that like constant messaging around me had any effect on me mm. and then coming here and there being way less advertising and also we lived in Pi for our first year and a half where there's like no billboards whatsoever oh, um, wow. okay. but that it's in Thai and I can't read Thai and so there's, there's just no messaging getting in other than like what I am intentionally choosing like nobody can you know sneak attack message me and they just like the 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 level of anxiety that it produced in me in America of just like the constant barrage of like overwhelm yeah overwhelm absolutely and and that it's not necessarily you know it's not like I'm even consciously taking it in but just that it's surrounding me and all these levels and 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 getting into all of the other people who are surrounding me and I'm feeling all of their energies and whatnot yeah just like the the level of the baseline of anxiety felt in America is so much higher than the baseline of anxiety here. And yeah, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but like mm. when I was in America, like, like linguistically and culturally, like I was just like, oh yeah, I'm a person with anxiety. I have anxiety, blah, blah, blah. And to just take it for granted as uh, what are you excited about, Sherry? <laughs> He's agreeing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, kind of, and being like, okay, yeah, I don't have it as bad as, like, you know, a lot of my friends, whatever, like, I got off pretty easy, and then coming here and being like, oh, kind of realizing that I was doing this to myself, it's all a choice, I have control, and, uh, yeah, I did, like, a breathwork workshop after I was here for two months or something, and was, t- and was taught very, very easily and quickly how to stop having panic attacks. Awesome. And I haven't had a panic attack since, it's been years, and, and then, yeah, Excellent. taking the realizing that it is my responsibility and that I'm in control was very overwhelming and being like oh like kind of that there is a a joy in the irresponsibility of of being like this is happening to me and Mm. it's not my fault and I'm not in control and that that's like where Mm. a lot of people are live and stay and never get the opportunity to to be exposed to the fact that they're doing a lot of it to themselves there is another way very good that's when your thoughts about the symptom change and that's when the symptom becomes like cleaned away yeah because the main thing that people suffer from from panic attacks is actually just the fear of having another panic attack right I mean in the moment of having a panic attack it's like I'm dying there's there's no doubt I'm dying this one's definitely a heart attack this is the end uh, it's the most common thing that people think in their first panic attack and then something gets set up in their mind like always looking for the sign of another panic attack yeah absolutely yeah. and being like oh, okay this is what triggered a panic attack previously like it's inevitable okay yeah, yeah here it is yeah yeah absolutely and now just being like yeah I don't think I'll ever ever have Excellent. a panic attack ever again no because problem because now you, know, now you know how to control that feeling 
And that, I mean, even, that feeling even if it doesn't started, really even come up in the same way at all excellent. anymore. It's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Glad to hear that. <laughs> all therapy leads leads to leads to a change in awareness. Yeah. Yeah. I always I I always tell all my clients. One of my teachers, he I, I always remember this for some reason. The hypnosis school in London, and we used to go to the pub. You know, at the end at the end of class, can you imagine how quickly we could clear out a pub in London? Like, you know, ten to twenty hypnotherapy students walking into the pub, talking about hypnosis. But one time, the teacher he said, "I love panic attacks." He's like, "I've got a hundred percent record of panic attacks." I always teach all my clients that when they come for panic, I'm like, I "Fucking love panic attacks." But I'm going to teach you how to make love to your panic. Mm. And that always shocks them. They're like, "What?" When you make love to an emotion, it disappears. Yeah. What you resist persists. What you accept transforms. Well, I like that. That's awesome. I'm going to write that one down for sure. Mm. How do you keep yourself safe from like uh, these these energies, vibrations, or like any emotional toxicity? Like, do you have practices in place to mm. keep whiskey and football? No, well, those things as well. But like. <laughs> <laughs> Meditation, meditation is the most important. And you know, I'm a, I'm a I'm Reiki master teacher. I have pretty strong energetic uh, protection practices that go with my meditation and um, structures from Reiki. So when I feel myself getting drained in a session, I'm able to hold up energetic barriers and stuff. So fu fundamentally, meditation, Reiki self practices, um, life balance so i limit the amount of sessions i offer each day i take breaks between sessions i have been tuning in, if you tune in myself when i feel that for some reason i'm getting out of my own personal balance because i desire to be at least 90 percent energetically of all my clients and my work is draining um i've had days where i just cancel sessions because i felt that i'm losing my own balance i find that to be much more authentic I don't, I've not done that very often, but if I need to, I will. Keeping my own self-balance so I can help other people. Because yeah. it's kind of a very still, grounded state that you should be in as a therapist to be able to channel the, channel the information that comes through me. And, and the way in psychic space I help people to process emotions. I see imagery in my mind and I channel when I work all the time. Really for me, like all the things are the same, right? Reiki is the same as hypnosis in a way. And doing stuff which is non-spiritual in nature, like whiskey and football. <laughs> <laughs> on the topic of whiskey, on your on your website you refer to addiction as a learned behavior, usually as a result of an unconscious attempt to relieve pain. Uh, what are your views on the disease model of addiction? God, what's over disease model? Is this idea that you're a victim of your genetics? Uh -huh. Yeah, I think it's bullshit. <laughs> I'll piss a lot of people off saying that, but I I really do. You, you know what the first why the first reason is the whole the, like kind of the initial thing that you say about something it's called a pre-frame right so I was actually studying Russell Brunson yesterday and he was talking and then expert uh, no, the first book whatever that's called dot com secrets went one way around for some reason he's talking about the pre-frame of the nature of an advert of, of how somebody's led into a funnel you know like the pre-fame of you've helped, you've got this client that you've helped to overcome her panic attacks and she's like, hey, go and check out, you know, go check out my therapist's, you know, free whatever thing. 
This pre-frame of this is, this, is a, this is some content from somebody that really helps somebody I love compared to a pre-frame of, okay, I'm signing up for this free thing from some random stranger on Facebook. It's probably quite dodgy. So the pre-frame of everything changes our emotional response to stuff. So if you start off in the beginning pre-framing, like I'm a victim, my dad was like this, my grandfather was like this, there's nothing I can do about this. I'm a victim of alcoholism. Well, that's not very useful, you know, to me. To me. Even if it was the truth, I still say break that belief. How about being like, I am responsible for my life, and yes, there's been a great amount of alcoholism in my family. Yes, when I was brought up, I was again and again receiving imprints of the male of the family drinking and being abusive to the female of the family. Yes, my father received those imprints from his grandfather, you know, and blah, blah, blah. So of course a lot is learned through osmosis, but it's much more useful to start off by creating the belief that, okay, yes, I have this, this challenge in my relation. I, I teach what I call the art of inner relationship. So I'm like, you've got a relationship with alcohol. And alcohol is like a spirit. And in every relationship, there's normally something which it gives you, and there's normally something which it takes away from you. So if we can begin to understand the things that it gives you, and when you learn that association, oh, it gives me escapism from anxiety, oh, it gives me confidence... Oh, it was how I used to get laid, you know, like, what does it take away from you? Like in this moment now, oh, it takes away, you know, the, my children don't feel safe with me. You know, my relationship is suffering. Oh, it, like we have financial problems, I spend too much money on alcohol. Then you can begin to work with the actual relationship you have with alcohol against a baseline belief of no matter what the past is, no matter what my genetics is, there's something I can do about this. I think that's a lot better place to begin with these things and everything else. And then looking at what are the what are the triggers that make you drink? Feeling anxious, feeling overwhelmed, you know, like being with those particular people and then we can begin to work with those triggers and find different ways to engage in life without the alcohol. I never I never want to give reinforce people's beliefs that there's something wrong with them. I think that's very bad therapy. I think that's the kind of therapy that makes like customers for drug companies rather than solutions to problems Sad. I don't like the mass hypnosis happening in the world which is your emotions are a sickness and you should take drugs every day to feel better but yet we're in a war on drugs <laughs> and, 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 and the most powerful therapy drug in the world is not okay to use it's illegal like fuck off like, <laughs> this is clearly ridiculous if anyone looks at it, it's absolutely clearly ridiculous. <laughs> you know, but yes, people. Some people do need medication. Absolutely, there's real conditions that need medication. But ev every six, I'm, I'm not saying there's not. And it's and if people who are on medication, it's really important to have proper medical advice if you wish to reduce dosages or to stop medication. That's so important because it's very dangerous to just stop taking these these drugs. They suppress emotional signals. I believe all our emotions are a signal. So if you're suppressing all that energy for years and suddenly stop, it can come up and be very, very overwhelming. So medical advice is very important for any of those questions. Um, however, like finding, you know, finding psychiatrists who actually want to support people with coming off medication, of which there are plenty, <laughs> and they're also psychiatrists who believe that everyone should be medicated to the 
healed. And looking at the difference between those two things. I think short-term uses of any medication for anything is much better than long-term uses. And there's appropriate short-term uses. I've had clients who haven't slept for weeks because of something that's happened. And I'm like, first thing, go to the doctor down the road, get some benzodiazepines, three days in a row, sleep for three days in a row, then come back to me so you can focus in hypnosis and we can figure out what's going on. That makes perfect sense. So balance, right? Balance. I think this is very important. Hmm. Yeah, I think, the, uh, I think the disease model of addiction came from wanting to sort of foster compassion for the addict mm. and it morphed into this ideology that backfired <laughs> and is still around today. Um, so rather than just saying they're worthless piece of shit drunk, it was like, well, they have a disease, you know? Mm. And then that's sort of, it's sort of more palatable. They're, they're, worth, they're worth more love and attention. Hey, what's the thing from AA of being like, why you have to give yourself <coughs> over to a higher power? Surrender to a higher power. But it's like because you're... It's a good step. You're powerless over drugs and alcohol. Oh, yeah, so that's a, that's a very bad preframe. Because surrendering to a higher power, like, I desire to live my life in a higher way. I'm asking my guide, I'm asking Jesus, I'm asking Buddha, you know, like for assistance. Because I want to be like a, a better example as a human being for my children. It's, it's a great, good thing to do. But it's a bit like I surrender because I'm powerless. Yeah, bad proof. Well, but are there any things that you would like to tell our listeners to go check out or do or any other, any final words? So... Uh, you can go to my website, practicalhealing.com, with a hyphen, with a hyphen, practical-healing.com. Um, I'm just about to release a, a free webinar called How to Heal Depression and Overcome Anxiety Without Spending Thousands of Dollars and Years of Your Life in Therapy. Wow. I basically begin by teaching the secrets of EI, Emotional Intelligence. So... That will be on my website. Well, it probably is by the time you guys actually post this podcast. This has gone up on Thursday. Okay, perfect. I'll get it online before Thursday then. <laughs> Practical-healing.com. You can sign up for the free web class there. And I'll be building out more content on my site, just teaching people about emotional education and building the YouTube channel as well. Practical healing for you, I think. All at my website. Nice. Excellent. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much for coming. Um, My pleasure. It was a wonderful pleasure to talk to you. Great to talk to you guys, too.